So Tanner, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It's uh, it's been a while trying to get you on, but uh, I'm I'm really glad to, to be able to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, it's been a, a few few months since we could link up, but it's I'm happy that we we're able to do so. Great. Um, if you don't mind, if you could give uh, the the listeners some background into into yourself, your your research, what you do, um, that would be great. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I guess I should start with saying that I'm a fifth year PhD student at McMaster University. I work under the supervision of Dr. Stuart Phillips. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the work that uh, that Stu does, and a lot of the people you've actually had on as as previous guests, we've worked with them. So uh, my path into research it it was I'd say non-linear, um, but like a lot of your previous guests, I came to it from a sport perspective. Never knew I wanted to get into research. I started playing hockey, actually. And I wouldn't say that I paid attention to my nutrition. I wasn't like a high-quality athlete uh, like yourself or, or some of your other listeners. I would say I was mediocre. Actually, I listened to uh, Jeremy Lenneke's podcast. And I, I oh, like the way that he put it, yeah. Uh, more academically inclined than uh, inclined for sports. So I took in my high school class an exercise physiology course, and I'd never really been exposed to that before. And we learned a lot about how nutrition, exercise, things like that influence performance. And I was curious, inquisitive, um, and I started trying to implement some of those things and seeing how it affected my ability to play hockey, soccer, all these other things. Um, and then I kind of, when I was going to university, I liked the exercise physiology route. Uh, I stopped playing hockey because I didn't think I'd be able to continue it and focus more on just exercise for exercise sake and, and really resistance training. And I got into that because we had a set of old weights at home that I, that I used every now and then. Uh, at McMaster, I took kinesiology for my bachelor's. Um, and I learned a lot about this guy named Stu, who in, in many of our nutrition classes, when we started going over research papers, nutrition, exercise, things like that. His name kept popping up. And it wasn't until second year, I believe, that I, I realized that he was actually a professor at McMaster. Uh, he had taught some of the nutrition courses, but when I came in, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a switch. Someone else had, had started. So I had him in third year. And I approached him and I asked him if he had any spots in his, his laboratory to work. So... I joined the lab, and as you probably know, he does a lot of, of applied work uh, pertaining to athletes, aging individuals, things like that. And I really became interested in that, but also the use of stable isotope tracers because it was kind of like a mechanistic uh, bent for me that really appealed to, to what I was interested in. And I guess fast forward, I've been at McMaster now for, for eight years, and I've been with Stu ever since completing my, uh, my bachelor's. Mm. Very interesting. And just on kinesiology, that seems like a very, uh, well, in my experience, seems like a very North American term. Is that kind of like physiology? I, 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 you really don't see it that often outside the US. Is that? Yeah, quite generally, it's like the, the study of body movement. I believe that's what okay. the term stands for. So it is. it was kind of like an extension of, of exercise physiology. Actually, my, uh, my high school coordinator recommended that I look into that. I, I did. And it... Uh, it was really similar, so. Mm. And and what I found, you mentioned a little bit about athletes there. What I found is that, like, with with like say physique athletes or 
bodybuilding or these kind of competitions, people know the importance of, of nutrition because well you need to be a certain body fat percentage because the, it's an aesthetic or visual thing but with other athletes even at a very high level they often underestimate nutrition um or the importance of it i think like thinking back i, I was speaking to some uh team gb uh olympians during, before the olympics and they were quite high level and they said oh, they don't pay any attention to their nutrition they just eat whatever um and it's uh, even you know speaking to some friends who play like high level sports as well um when i just asked them you know i, I don't I don't kind of portray my values onto them or my or kind of t- try and teach them or preach them. But they, they often say it's like, Oh yeah, I know, I know nutrition as if like, it's just uh, something that's like, you just eat, you know, eat carbs and, you know, eat, eat, have a protein shake and you're, you're pretty good. Um, so it's kind of interesting that it's almost understated the, the effects of it. But when you look at like some of the research and even in like the, the premier league, uh, football in, in the UK, soccer, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's a even a lot of those athletes who are paid you know quarter of a million a week um are, are under fueling um and it affects their performance so it's uh it's it's definitely really interesting um so yeah your your current research or your current phd is that um is there is there a specific topic around that i know that stu does a lot of stuff on exercise and a lot of it related to hypertrophy and then you know protein as well is there is that what you do as well uh, yeah, so I've kind of touched on all of the different things that Stu does in his lab. When I first came in, it was more pertaining to the role of disuse and inactivity on muscle protein synthesis in aging populations. Yep. Um, and then when I went into my master's after that, it was more towards trying to understand the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy, uh, just because of what I was interested in and kind of what projects he had going on at the, at the time. That was a good fit for me. So that's what I got into. Um, I would say like to get into that a little bit more when I speak of mechanisms, it's, it's mainly looking at gene expression and how the, how resistance training influences that maybe what genes might be involved in hypertrophy in quote unquote high responders, what might not be activated in lower responders, uh, things like that. I've done a lot of stuff with measurement techniques, MRI, ultrasound, uh, trying to get a simple but effective method of easily measuring muscle, uh, muscle size and changes mm. in muscle size. Um, and then yeah, nutrition. So protein quantity, quality, those are big aspects of what we do as well, but now they're kind of integrated into our projects. I think Stu's got a lot of, uh, work dating back to when Nick bird and, and Dr. Dan Moore were in his lab. They kind of sorted through a lot of the, the protein quality, quantity, timing issues, things like that. So that's, that's now become a part of, I would say of our research. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about some of the the research that Bert has done, but we, we can come to that. Um, I, and I I think that like genome sequencing and and that area will definitely become huge in the future. Um, because I know it's still an area that is massively under un or mis not misunderstood, but just not not as understood as it, as it could be in the future. Um, because of costs, right? So sequ- I think it was like you know ten years ago, sequencing genomes was like tens of thousands, and now I think it can be done for less than a thousand or perhaps even less just with the the computers and the you know the amount of compute capacity how, how much cheaper it's got these days um so yeah to, just to, to, to kind of set a baseline it would be great if you could give us an overview of what actually protein is used for in the body i know a lot of people you know understand that it's for building muscle but given your research it'd be it'd be interesting to to kind of hear from you what actually protein is used for <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's interesting. And and when I was coming into the lab, Stu had had got me to to write a review. Usually, that's that's kind of your initiation into beginning the research process and writing is just to learn what's been done before, right? So a lot of that review was focused on diet quality, uh, or sorry, protein quality and quantity. Um, but what, what's not really discussed, at least before that, it was kind of piecemealed together, was what actually happens to the protein uh, once you ingest it. And so many of us have taken nutrition courses where you learn about carbohydrate digestion, fat digestion, protein digestion, but we don't really link it together with, with what happens once it gets in circulation. At least we didn't go into to too much depth. Uh, and so that's where we kind of started. And so we we had a section in our paper that was really just based off of the protein is in your mouth, what happens now? And so if we just talk through that, essentially it gets into the stomach, right? Stomach is a very acidic environment. Uh, pepsin starts breaking down the protein into individual amino acids, but mainly peptides, tripeptides, dipeptides, things like that. And then once it gets into the, the small intestine, specifically the, uh, the duodenum, that's where the, the remainder of the digestion occurs. So that really gets it into a, a position where it can be absorbed across into the enterocytes, which is essentially the, the cells of the small intestine. And now what was really surprising to me when I was looking at the, the tracer work, uh, much of this dating back to the, the 80s and 90s, was how much of the protein is actually sequestered by the splanchnic tissues. So the gut, the, the intestine, and then the liver before it gets into the circulation and circulates throughout the body to, to the muscle. So it actually works out to be about 40 to 50% is retained in the gut tissue. And so might ask, you know, what's, what's that being used for? In the gut, it's mainly for energy production. So the, the gut preferentially uses things like glutamate, glutamine, and, and uh, aspartate, I believe, for energy production. And then the rest is just used for local protein synthesis, building the proteins that need to be replaced. What's not used by the splanchnic tissues is then kind of offloaded into the portal vein, gets taken up into the liver. And then the liver also uses amino acids, uh, not so much for energy production, uh, but for the synthesis of different hepatic proteins, right? So obviously there's turnover going, going on there as well, um, as well as the, the secreted proteins like albumin. So when you actually get down to what's, what gets into the circulation, you're looking at about 50% of the protein that you're ingesting. And that's going to vary based on you know, how much protein you're consuming, the type of protein you're consuming, but generally that's, that's the number you're looking at, 50 to 55%. And then when you, when you actually consider what's taken up by the muscle through the amino acid transporters into the intracellular pool and can be used for a substrate for building new proteins, muscle anabolism, is only about 10 to 11%. So there's actually, there's a group in the Netherlands who has a a really interesting technique called intrinsically labeled protein. So essentially, if we, we consume a, a normal protein shake, it's it's obviously got just naturally occurring amino acids that we've we've isolated from different sources. What this group does is they they actually infuse labeled tracers into lactating cows, and when they collect the milk, it has amino acids that are already labeled. So their protein shakes essentially have these labels on them. And when you ingest it, you can track its fate throughout the body. And when they did that, they found that 
again, only about 10 to 11%, 2.2 grams in their case, because they had given a 20 gram bolus, actually makes it into newly synthesized proteins. So it kind of mm -hmm. just goes to show you for the purposes of muscle anabolism, the discrepancy between how much is actually absorbed by the body and how much is actually used for new protein synthesis, which I found it really fascinating. Mm. Is that the, the, the lab at, with, with Jorn Tremelin and Luke Van Loon, their lab? Yeah, exactly. And the, fir yeah. the first author yeah. on that paper was uh, Bart Grun, if, if any of your listeners are interested in mm. looking that up. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Then it, it kind of makes me wonder, like, what is the, what is the idea behind, or the, you know, when we, we hear about the, the minimum or the, the average of, you know, three grams of, of leucine to kind of maximize muscle protein synthesis. Cause if you're only getting 10% into the, or 11% that actually impacts muscle protein synthesis, then it, you know, why is it that you need three grams of leucine? Is it, is it that we really need 0.3 grams for muscle protein synthesis to be in the muscle or I know it has research hasn't actually been done, but I'm just hypothesizing here. Yeah, it's certainly it's a possibility. And, and some obviously some of that three grams is going to get taken up by the splenic tissue. Uh, the liver itself actually has a quite low quantity of the enzyme that breaks down branched chain amino acids. So including leucine, which means that the majority of what the, the liver actually kicks out is actually branched chains. Um, so that's some people think that's maybe why we've evolved to have a leucine trigger for muscle protein mm. synthesis. But yeah, to answer your question, I, I, I don't know the answer, but I would say um, it's what gets past splanchnic retention and mm. makes it to the muscle. And maybe, so leucine is thought to be sensed by a protein called Cestrin-2 in skeletal muscle. And then that signals through various pathways to then affect mTORC1 to stimulate mm. protein synthesis. So it might have to it might have to do with the binding kinetics between leucine and cestrin too, but that's complete speculation. Most of that work has been from uh, from cells, and it's just starting to to come out in rodents now. So, yeah, yeah, and, and that that other say when you said like fifty percent or, or roughly is doesn't make it past the the uh, you know the lumen whatever used for anabolism in the in the in the gut. And then the other 50%, 10% that that is, is used for MPA, muscle protein synthesis, the other 40% isn't wasted per se, right? It's used for whole body protein synthesis, nails, DNA, hair, these kind of things, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so enzymes are functioning all over the body. They're the, the biological workhorse and proteins. They, they have a number of different functions that, you know, I, I think being in the muscle field, we fail to consider that there are other organs involved and other tissues. But yeah, for sure. So other tissues use them to yeah, synthesize nails and hair, like you were saying. Um, energy, they, they get catabolized mm. to their carbon skeleton for production of energy. Um, and then neurotransmitters. There's a whole bunch of different things that the, the body uses it for. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's very interesting. Then to, to jump into, say, then something regarding specifically muscle protein synthesis because that's you know what we're most interested in what what affects muscle protein synthesis is it training uh quantity quality of protein how do, how do all these vary and impact impact that yeah so there, there's a lot of different things obviously that are going to influence protein synthesis but if we yeah if we start so our lab is mainly focused on 
quality and quantity. We can touch on training too at the end. Yeah. Um, for, for quality, if we just start at quality, different protein sources have different quote unquote qualities based on the absorption of the amino acids across the intestine, de depending on what metric you're using, and also the composition of the protein. So there's broadly animal-based like dairy proteins, which we consider to be quite high quality. And then there's plant-based sources, soy, wheat, corn, things like that, potato. Um, some of those are, are also high quality, but they have relatively low quantities of certain essential amino acids. So that's important because when we think about skeletal muscle composition, it has a certain proportion of the different amino acids that make up the proteins. And so, you know, ideally, if you're going to match a protein source to what would be ideal for muscle building, it would be one that has a similar composition of amino acids. And so much of our work has focused on, I should say, our previous work. We're now starting to get more into different plant-based sources, but uh, animal-based, so beef protein, uh, as well as egg, milk, those, those have kind of formed the foundation of what we do when we give people supplements. Uh, and that's because those ones, those ones stimulate muscle protein synthesis to a greater extent than the plant-based sources, just because of the, uh, because of the amino acid composition. We were talking about leucine a little bit, animal, animal mm. and, uh, and dairy-based proteins have quite high quantities of leucine. Um, so they're able to, to trigger through mTORC1 better. Uh, but also when we think about plant-based sources, there's, there's a few different anti-nutritional anti factors such as you know, fiber um, polyphenolic tannins that they affect the digestion and absorption of protein. So now if we, if we go back up to what we were just talking about, splenic retention and things like that, if you're affecting that process to an even greater extent, then you're going to absorb less of those amino acids. And it's thought that the rise in amino acids in the circulation is what triggers protein synthesis. Again, leucine triggering through cestrin and mTORC1. Um, so when you're reducing that peak, you're going to get less stimulation. At least that's what some of the acute studies from our lab have shown. Another thing though, I will say for that is like you don't have, if, you, if you're a vegetarian, if you're a vegan, you don't have to consume animal-based protein or dairy-based protein uh, to get a maximal stimulation of protein synthesis. You can do other things. So when you process the protein source, then you increase the absorption um, to a comparable extent uh, as whey and casein and things like that. Um, heating it, that's, that's a little bit less relevant to this conversation, but I would say that the easiest thing you could do if you're not an older adult who has appetite issues is just increase the amount that you're you're consuming like again if we think about our work in the work that was done in uh, in the Netherlands in uh, Luke von Lund's group they showed that like wheat protein if you just consume I believe it was 40 grams or 60 grams you get the same stimulation of muscle protein synthesis as you would consuming a, a whey-based supplement so it's not mm. an issue if you don't have appetite issues and things like that it just becomes a problem when like you know, we tell a lot of older adults they need to consume yeah. more protein, but, you know, a lot of them can't do it. So that's when things like dairy protein and, and animal-based protein sources, I think, are, are important. Um, so that's quality. Just on the, quarter, on the quality bit before you move on, um, 
I, I know you mentioned, um, you know, one of the reasons why you want that extra amount of, I think it was like 40 is, is equal to like 40 grams of wheat is similar to 30 or 20 grams of away. Can't remember the exact numbers, but because basically you increase the, the, amino, the essential amino acid levels. What if you just took leucine with a, a, a lower quality source of protein, or is it that you need more of all of the nine essential amino acids? Because they will be there, right, in wheat. It's just that you don't have that the trigger, uh, you know, at the sufficient amount, whatever it is, three grams of leucine. If you just consumed leucine, like if, if you were selling a, a plant-based protein and just put extra leucine in it, would that be sufficient? Or do you need to have all of the essential amino acids has to be increased or do they just have to be there in, in some form? Yeah, that's a good question. So to answer your question, yes, you, you can just fortify it with, uh, it doesn't always have to be leucine. It can just be the amino acid that's limiting. Uh, in a lot okay. of these, in a lot of these protein sources, it's methionine and lysine. So a lot of the times, if you just fortify it with so, soy, I believe is an example of that, mm-hmm. where if you just fortify it with methionine or lysine, that it improves the quality of the protein. Um, we've shown that if you if you add leucine to six grams of whey protein, you get the same stimulation as if you had consumed twenty five grams. So it's certainly possible that you that you can do that. Another thing you can do is combine complementary protein sources. So you can combine something that's low in methionine with something that's higher in methionine, but maybe deficient in something else. So uh, I've heard of a lot of people combining like rice and beans together because the protein mm-hmm. sources that they have are complementary and you can kind of get a, a greater profile or a better profile of essential amino acids. That's even in Arnold Schwarzenegger's encyclopedia, um, which I read when I was like 15. The big book that like he just wrote from his head. I think he actually recommends rice and beans in one of the meals. Yeah, I also I also have that book. I think yeah, a lot of these guys just come through it through trial and error, right? You just find mm. out what works and yeah, just go with that. So, mm. and and then just another separate question on on the on the quality because essential amino because we don't need the 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 dispensable or the non-essential amino acids do we create those from essential amino acids and then technically could we just consume only essential amino acids i know it's not possible but you could supplement with only essential amino acids and if you have enough then you have if you overeat them then you'll have enough to create those non-essential amino acids uh yeah in yeah in a sense you're you're right so we our body has the capacity to form non-essential amino acids. It's why they're non-essential. A lot of the times, though, if you're consuming a high quantity of essential amino acids, they'll get oxidized and used for, for energy. Mm. Some of them can be, yeah, like you said, converted to non-essential amino acids. I think as a strategy, if you just wanted to supplement with, with essential amino acids, you could do that, like in, in the place of a protein shake or something like that. What I think confuses a lot of people or is a point of confusion is branch, just supplementing branch chain amino acids. Um, So branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and valine. The problem with that, so you're supplying the the main signaling trigger, right? Leucine. But if you imagine you're just triggering MPS constantly, eventually you're going to be limiting in the other eight, or in that case, six essential amino acids, right? So your body's not getting them through the supplement. And if you're not consuming whole food, then you're not getting it through diet either. So what the body does is it activates protein breakdown to supply the substrates. So it gets it from another tissue and other other proteins that maybe not 
are not as needed in that situation, break it down, and then you now have the substrate that you can synthesize the other proteins with. So it's, it's kind of like it's a losing battle, I think, from the start just to use branched-chain amino acids. But yeah. to, yeah. to use essentials, it's, that would be fine, I, I think, yeah. You're, I mean, in your scenario there, you're, you, just to not scare people, I think you're probably thinking about if one was to only consume BCAs, not in the context of somebody who has BCAs in during a, a normal feeding day where they eat protein as well, right? It's not like consuming BCAs, will, you actually go into a catabolic state. It's if you're only consuming BCAs, right? For sure, yeah. If you were if you were just supplementing with with BCAs, mm. and like like we were saying earlier, like most people would get their protein sources through whole foods, with the exception of maybe like peri workout nutrition when you're just you want a quick protein shake after the gym or mm. something like that, or or branch chains or or whatever. Um, if if your or if your listeners are interested, there's a there's a guy called Bob Wolf who wrote a really interesting review on this from 2017 i believe on the use of branch chain amino acids in, in muscle anabolism and he essentially just talks about that like they are going to be stimulating protein synthesis for sure but if that's if that's your only strategy then you know at some point you got to consider the other essentials through alternative mm -hmm. means whether it be food or and i i don't think that's an issue for most people like a lot of the times what we're looking at is theoretical and then we kind of just build on that right to to give people the the ideal you know supplementation mm. strategy yeah I, I don't know anybody who would just have bcas as their only food source and um, it'd be pretty expensive and you'd be pretty hungry but um one thing i can think of is is back like maybe 10 years ago um lean gains i think his name was martin birkin he used to actually promote like an intermittent fasting protocol but during that fast you could actually have branch chain amino acids i'm not sure if it still still follows that but I, I don't know if that window would be long enough um you know overnight fast plus you know an additional six hour fast if that would be long enough to actually start to stimulate muscle protein breakdown or you would you still have circulating amino acids from the previous day that you know wouldn't impact it yeah, that's a good question. I'm not I'm not too familiar with the intermittent fasting field, but I, I know that what BCAs is going to do is it's going to stimulate protein synthesis. And if anything, it'll increase the efficiency with which those broken down amino acids are used for new muscle protein synthesis versus kind of sent off to the liver and converted to glucose gotcha. or something for energy. Okay. Um, but I, th I think that process would fail eventually once glycogen in the liver is, is depleted and, yeah. and all those other things start to happen. So if you like train your arms and have BCAs fasted, you'll get smaller legs, but your arms will get bigger. <laughs> <You've gotta come laughs> nah, I'm just, I'm just joking. I mean, that's, that's what people like who write books on like nutrition. They kind of take these hypothetical scenarios and then like blow it up into this thing like carnivore MD or whatever. Um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I, I never knew that before. Definitely going to check out that, that, um, review. Uh, or that paper um then it, it actually kind of leads nicely onto um well, well before we, we jump into eas you, you you want to talk a little bit about the the quantity and quality and i guess or sorry the quantity and and how training affects mps well but i guess qu uh, quantity is affected then by quality right we kind of touched on that yeah for sure and i think there's not too much to say about quantity that i'm sure your listeners haven't heard already like but we've done a lot of this work in the past uh dr dan moore looked at the dose response of muscle protein synthesis to, to how much protein you're consuming. Um, and then again, depending on your age, it's between 20 to 40 grams per serving. 
Um, but I think what's important to note is what we're now focusing on more is what's happening over the course of an entire day and not just the one to four hour uh, post-workout window. It's obviously important, but in the grand scheme of things, I think what we're all what we all are interested in is being anabolic over the course of the day and maybe not necessarily just one period of the day. So we can look at that by using different tracer methodologies and that's that's a little bit what we're doing now. Uh, and I think what the what the work is starting to consistently show is that total protein versus um, peri workout protein, things like that, taking protein every two hours, total protein seems to be the the main driver. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, relative to resistance training, it adds only a very little, a little bit to the overall muscle gained. But I think that's a good number to target. If you're older, if you have poor quality protein sources in your diet, it's going to be higher than that maybe. Uh, if you're in an energy restricted state, it's going to be higher than that for sure. Um, but generally, we're trying to hit that number, 1.6. So, mm. Yeah, that's um, that's you know that's interesting i think a lot of people they they overemphasize the post-workout nutrition period where um you know isn't it up to something like 72 hours where muscle protein synthesis is elevated uh from training and i think after it's like maybe 50 percent after 24 hours of, of it was kind of i think it's it's about an hour it's peaks after training i'm not i'm not exactly sure i can't remember but it maybe it's not directly after right and then you get that synergy from eating protein but but actually training when, when people say is it you always see these motivational videos is, you know, 50% training, 50% diet, but actually really training is, is kind of more important because it stimulates it more and, and for longer. Right. Yeah. Especially when we're talking about gaining, gaining muscle. And yeah, so Nick, Nick Bird's mm -hmm. work showed that, uh, resistance training kind of sensitizes the muscle for about 24 hours. So if you really wanted to get down to it, there is a window, but it's a long window. So I, I would hope mm -hmm. that you're probably eating something within that 24 hour period, but yeah, the, the mm. window's quite long. Yeah, I guess that probably that initial research, whenever whenever that was, is probably what led to the idea of of training muscle groups multiple times a week if you want to maximize that. Because you know, after three days, you you won't technically be that muscle won't be in a state of anabolism. But 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 interestingly, there's some been some uh, kind of research done by I think it was James Krieger looking at when when volume is kind of equated. It actually doesn't really make a huge difference if it's training once per week versus more frequencies than once per week, which is which is interesting because you know from a uh, from a a mechanistic point of view, it seems that it should it should you I mean you know training three times a week should be better than training once, but it doesn't seem to be that way. Yeah, uh, one thing my supervisor always talks about is it's like resistance training and all the different variables. It's like having a, a wet towel and you wring it out once, you get most of the water out, you get most of the benefit from that. <laughs> and then each additional time you're squeezing it, you get a few extra drops, right? So I think that analogy applies to a lot of the different yeah. variables for resistance training. Like just getting to the gym and doing something is obviously your listeners are, are very high performing in that regard. But for a lot of people, just getting to the gym and doing anything is, is an issue, right? So um, we try and focus a little bit less on, you know, four sets versus three sets versus yeah. two, you know, and then really just what are you going to get the most bang for your buck out of? That's, yeah, I would say, I would say one is, is fine. One, like one yeah. exercise bout per body part. Yeah. Mm. Like Pareto's principle, right? You get the, 
the, the most benefit from uh, the, the kind of the lowest input. Um, yeah, so so then touching on, um, I, I think it was the same bird that you, you mentioned, but I, I was reading some research recently about, because I, I have seen a rise in people who, like people who are very say dedicated and they want to cross every T and dot every I where they're starting to consume essential amino acids. Cause so you kind of touched a little bit about branching amino acids. They got a bit of a bad rap. And to be honest, I personally think that it's, it's, they got a bit more of a bad rap than, than necessary because they're not absolute garbage. They're better than drinking water. If you're in a lower protein state and they can be used in certain scenarios, I couldn't drink protein during a cycle because I would feel sick. I could drink, I could drink BCAs cause they're like drinking, you know, what kind of like flavored water um but but obviously in a if you're eating enough protein they're they're not necessarily any ben, any beneficial but then i've heard of a lot of people then i've seen a lot of people starting to use essential amino acids during their training and um, even when one consumes protein at the start of the workout and at the end of the workout because people who want to maximize every they, they want to wring that tail so dry that it's like you know bone dry so um these people tend to try and do more to see what, what they can, you know, what they can get out of it. So do you think there's any benefit from essential amino acids? I know there's very, there's maybe only four papers or maybe even less when it's, when, when protein is equated. And from what I've seen, there doesn't seem to be any additional benefit for having, you know, that extra spike of MPS during your training. If you already have a pre-workout uh, protein feeding. Yeah, I agree with you. I, from what I've read, I don't see any benefit of doing it, especially if everything else surrounding the workout and the rest of the day is, is dialed in. Um, but yeah, like you said, these people are the people who are trying to get every last benefit they can. Like if it's one additional percent of increased performance, increased muscle mass, then that matters in bodybuilding and in different sports like that. Right. But it is important to also consider that most of the research, if not all of the research, especially in that area, is done in what we call recreationally active, healthy individuals. So it's recreationally active is not actively participating in like mm -hmm. resistance training, aerobic training for more than two days per week. A lot of the criteria is less than that. It's just they just do regular intramural sports, things like that. That's not very taxing. So a lot of these things may change based on the population. Um, and that's certainly a possibility. I'm not aware of any literature to suggest that uh, essential amino acids during exercise would be a benefit. The only thing I can think of is essential amino acids are going to release insulin into circulation, and that's going to have a suppressive effect on protein breakdown. So maybe they think for the purposes of muscle anabolism, if protein breakdown is um, is inhibited and then after the exercise bout you're increasing it then maybe protein turn they think protein turnover is going to be greater overall i'm not sure i agree with that because even if you are suppressing protein breakdown you're, you're suppressing the normal process of removing damaged proteins from the muscle so yeah, mm. I, th I think there definitely needs to be more research looking at that. Um, and then I guess before we move on from that point, I will say that not a lot of research has been done in the intra-workout period because when we when we take muscle biopsies and measure protein synthesis, like it's it's obviously pretty invasive. To get somebody mm. who's exercising to just you know hop off the bike or hop off the leg press machine, pop out a piece of muscle tissue, it, it's pretty difficult. So. We traditionally just wait till afterwards. So we, we kind of look at different markers to try and gauge what might be going on in the muscle during the 
the workout period, but it is tough. Yeah. Mm. And I guess if, if you were really concerned about the insulin, you could have some like jelly babies or something like that. Um, <laughs> instead of paying $50 for a tub of EAAs. And it tastes um, better. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So on the, the muscle protein breakdown thing, you, you, you mentioned something that's pretty interesting to me there. Um, that it's an essential part of of the process of, of repairing or of, of recycling proteins. We we see on one end of the, well, one spectrum people who want to build muscle, they kind of they think that they should completely avoid muscle protein breakdown. Then you have the other kind of health focused people who think that they should fast for two weeks because of this autophagy. Um so I, I guess and I and I did read some research um in rats where they actually suppressed muscle protein breakdown and I, I can't remember the exact outcomes but it had worse hypertrophy outcomes um because they had they didn't have this repairing process so it'd be interesting um if you could expand on a little bit on, on why muscle protein breakdown is important and perhaps you know is, is there too much that's you know is there is there a certain level that's too much breakdown and how do we kind of negate that or or is there an amount that you know we don't want to suppress like you mentioned there and how do we perhaps augment that yeah, those are all good questions, interesting questions. Uh, so I guess just to start with that, that discussion, protein turnover in general, if we want to increase muscle size, obviously protein synthesis has to be greater than protein breakdown. So then there's two strategies. You could focus on increasing protein synthesis. You could focus on decreasing protein breakdown. I guess you could do both if you wanted to. We focus mainly on protein synthesis, and that's because we believe that protein breakdown serves a vital role in keeping the muscle healthy. So if you're resistance exercising, you are causing structural damage to the sarcomeres, the, the muscle lattice. And so if you have damaged proteins and they're just remaining there, they're not being cleared, then what you just get is an accumulation and then you, you effectively have a dysfunctional muscle, which is what those rodent papers where they knock out like a key autophagy gene or a key gene involved in um, ubiquitin prote the proteasome system, that's what they find is actually a, sarco a sarcopenic uh, phenotype a lot of the time. So the, the muscle is damaged, the function of the muscle in terms of strength is reduced. Um, in humans, obviously, we can't, can't knock things out and look at that, but there is correlative evidence to show that in older adults who have lower expression of uh, proteolytic markers, muscle protein breakdown markers, actually have poor muscle function and quality. So there does seem to be a repair and regeneration mechanism that is at play that seems to be important. Um, and like to me, it, it seems almost self-evident. Like we have chaperone proteins that ensure proper folding and things like that. But when proteins become old and they, their function is if they perform their function for a significant amount of time, they become damaged, they become oxidized through metabolic reactions and things like that. So I, I don't necessarily see a point in seeking to blunt the process that is going to remove those from the muscle. That's why I mm -hmm. think we should focus more on increasing the synthetic arm. And now, obviously, if you're, if you're consuming protein or protein and carbohydrates with the purpose of suppressing muscle protein breakdown, right? You mentioned that insulin spike and how it suppresses protein breakdown. That's not necessarily going to be pathological. And you certainly can't relate that to what's shown in a knockout animal model. Um, but I think beyond that 50%, 
suppression of muscle protein breakdown that you get with, say, just consuming a protein beverage, I don't see any additional benefit of suppressing it any further. Um, just be, just because you want to clear out those damaged uh, damaged proteins. Mm. And and I know that uh, say insulin, for example, suppresses muscle protein breakdown. If it, technically, and I know this is this is more so a hypothetical question, but if you're just eating, if you're grazing on carbohydrates all day long, and you had a constant state of of insulin, um, you know, you know, baseline insulin levels are high. Would that suppress muscle protein breakdown, or are, are we not? Are we are we talking more so that it, you know, we just negate it a little bit rather than completely stop it? Yeah, you're going to negate it, but also I think in that situation you're just going to become insulin resistant, right? If you're just if you're just <laughs> overloading your body, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of like adding carbohydrates to to protein, yeah, um, it we we we've done work where it shows no real benefit to mm. doing it. Um, it seems that insulin is driving the suppressive effect. Although there is a group in Galveston, Texas, uh, led by Bob Wolf. I mentioned his name earlier. They're of the opinion that if you consume much more protein than what we need to maximally stimulate protein synthesis, there's actually an insulin independent mechanism that suppresses in their study it was whole body protein breakdown. Um, so they, I think they gave 30 grams, which we know to maximally stimulate protein synthesis at the muscle. They also gave 70 grams of protein to another group. And in addition to measuring protein synthesis, they also measured whole body protein breakdown and, and synthesis, which is easier to measure, um, than at the muscle level. And they found that with the group consuming 70 grams of protein, you actually have a greater suppression of whole body protein breakdown. And what they say there is it's being, it's being suppressed at the level of the splanchnic tissue, so the gut that we mentioned at the start. And what's happening is it's being stored. And when you need it during periods of fasting, then it can release it into circulation for the, for the muscle. So it's, it's a very interesting hypothesis, but there's just, I think it's, they're reaching a little bit. They, there needs to be a little bit more mm -hmm. evidence to substantiate that, but there's, yeah, so I guess there'd be the insulin-dependent mechanism to suppress protein breakdown, and I don't really see any benefit beyond just consuming a regular protein beverage or consuming a mixed meal, for that matter. And then that insulin-independent mechanism, which, is, again, coming back to just the practical aspect of always consuming 70 grams of protein, I, I don't see it as being necessary. And I would, mm. I would opt to just allow muscle protein breakdown to continue in that situation and just yeah. focus on the repair and remodeling. I think I read some older work. It may have been by Stu Phillips or for him from his lab with, with the addition of, of carbohydrates to, I think it was 40 grams of, of whey protein didn't further suppress muscle protein breakdown. So is it, is it 40 grams? That's the kind of the amount, the, the minimum amount that would actually maximize that incident response. I think it's 15 IUs per, per ML or something like that. That would suppress um, muscle protein breakdown. Yeah, I, I would say you could probably even get away with a little bit less than that. Um, mm. The original study where they they were looking at that is Paul Greenhoff, uh, two thousand eight, I believe okay. it was. And even with just like the amount of protein that you would get from a protein shake and the insulinogenic impact of some of those amino acids, you're going to get 
almost close to that point where you don't get any further suppression of protein breakdown. So I think a little bit of, of carbohydrate addition would suppress that a little bit more to that maximum, but mm. 40, yeah, I don't think 40 grams is required. Yeah. So just two, two more final questions before we wrap up. The, the first one is kind of related to a little bit when you talked about, um, the certain amino acids are needed in the muscle um, or certain protein sources that have similar amino acid profiles or amounts to, to muscle tissue. Um, I, I think this was the reason why people started using collagen protein because they, they found, you know, if animal cartridges or you know bones were made from certain collagen and stuff that that may help uh, repair uh, cartilage and things like that and uh, ligaments and stuff like that. Is there any, is there any utility for collagen protein? I know I know it's a poor quality protein for when it comes to muscle protein synthesis because of the amino acid profile, but is there any benefit to consuming it for, say, health of, of the joints or joint integrity? Yeah, so in that realm, I'm going to speculate a little bit. So I don't I don't do much research in joint or cartilage realm, but yeah, you're, so you're right. The composition is is very similar. It's derived from from bone and cartilage and connective tissue mm-hmm. and things like that. So, I mean, in theory, it makes sense. In practice, though, if you do look at the composition, the ones that collagen is enriched in, like the amino acids, it's going to be glycine, proline, alanine, things like that. And those amino acids are not essential. Like, And we mentioned earlier that non-essential amino acids our body can synthesize anyways. So I don't really see a point from that perspective of doing of supplementing with just collagen as opposed to something else. Um, the other one that's enriched is something called hydroxyproline. So that's just proline that's been post-translationally modified, so hydroxyl group added to it. That's also present in cartilage and connective tissue and joints, things like that. Problem is the protein synthetic machinery that builds new proteins does not have an adapter molecule that fits hydroxyproline. So essentially what happens is the amino acids get taken up into the intracellular space, right? So whether that's muscle, whether that's cartilage tissue, whatever it is. And then from there, you have a little adapter molecules that help build, bring it to the ribosome where the protein is actually synthesized. We have adapter molecules for the original amino acids, the amino acids that are not post-translationally modified, but we don't have them for uh, hydroxyproline and other post-translationally modified species. So even if there is a lot of hydroxyproline in car- uh, in collagen protein, you're not going to be using that for joint replacement. You're just going to be using the amino acids that you can use to replace the joints. And that mm. that, that just comes back to the, those amino acids are non-essential. So it, it just comes back to total quality. Sorry, total total protein amount and just make sure you're hitting sufficient amounts yeah right. that's that's what i think and i generally think that's what the status of the literature is right now and there's mm. there's also people mm. saying that it stimulates protein synthesis which my supervisor would probably come on here and spend a, an hour of itself talking about that but <laughs> it's popular yeah. It, it, yeah it's funny it's it's like I, I don't know if it was considered a poor quality protein a couple of years ago but like now that it's popular it's it's like pretty expensive <laughs> so you're paying like a lot for it i think the same with whey i think it used to be a byproduct in dairy and of in, our, in ireland here dairy's a huge industry and uh, it was chucked i think like you know discarded and now it's like it's pretty expensive for a bag of protein um yeah the the final question i had for you um tanner was 
pre-sleep protein. So I know you mentioned total protein intake is the most important thing. Um, and it, you know, still certainly is. And that, that, you know, people should focus on that, but is there, is there utility in having a slower digesting casein or, or beef or some protein during those periods, perhaps where you, where you're sleeping or, you know, technically fasting because you're asleep or, or is it that we don't want this prolongated muscle protein synthesis effect and we actually want boluses where we actually have it going back down. Like we have this perhaps like a refractionary period or something like that, which we, I think we've talked about in a different podcast before. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the, the sleep period is obviously the period where we spend the most of the time fasting, eight hours for most individuals, some less, but it's generally the, the longest time we spend without consuming food. So you're definitely in a, a catabolic state. Metabolism is reduced a little bit. So obviously it's the catabolic state may not be as great as if you're awake and fasting, uh, but there's definitely an opportunity there for um, increasing anabolism again when you consider the the full 24-hour period and the work to support that is largely out of Luke von Loon's lab again in the Netherlands and, and Jorn uh, I don't mm. know if you've had him on the podcast but he spearheaded a lot of that work no uh, and Tim Schneider's so they yeah they essentially show what you just said so you, you consume casein and because it's slower digesting it's kind of released into the circulation over a prolonged period and at least with the studies they've shown where they've measured protein synthesis the following morning does seem to be elevated in those who have consumed the pre-sleep bolus. And if you look at, say, over a 12-week resistance training period, those who consume a protein bolus before bed, in addition to, I believe it was after, uh, after the exercise period probably, um, they had a greater increase in, in lean body mass. So lean body mass is not exclusively muscle tissue, but most of it is is muscle. So there does seem to be a benefit there, yeah. Was total, pro, was total protein equated in both groups? Yeah, I believe so. I'd have to look back at okay. it. Um, one thing I will say, though, from a practical side, I know some people, like if, they, if they consume a protein shake before bed, they're going to get up halfway, like, you know, halfway through the night. Yeah, yeah, yeah to go to the bathroom. And so I think if that's happening a significant amount, it's going to be detrimental. Like we've, we've shown in other studies that if you restrict sleep, you have a, a decrease in protein yeah. synthesis. So it's, again, it's, you got to know yourself and I mean, it's worth trying out if you're, if you want to try it out and if you sleep fine, then, you know, it's, it's mm. worth a shot, but I, I wouldn't compromise on sleep. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, I used to watch like, uh, these videos of like the Mr. Olympia's prepping and pretty sure Jay Cutler used to wake up in the middle of the night to actually have a shake or <laughs> um, eggs or something but, like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A full, a full blown steak and meal. Um, yeah, but ju actually, ju this is definitely the last question, but just on the, ca the casein versus whey thing, I know that I've looked at some research and I know it is limited. Um, but when you're looking at like 20 grams in a post-workout period, whey is superior, right? And, is that because of the leucine content? And if we were actually to add some leucine to the casein, would it be superior? Because if you look at the total total area under the curve of protein synthesis, it's actually very similar because obviously casein is slower digesting. It just doesn't raise as high. But if you actually added, say, a bit of leucine to that casein, would that, would that actually be superior? Because you have a higher and longer um, protein synthesis response and then 
you know, area under the curve or total time where protein synthesis above baseline is higher. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there with the area under the curve. It's important not to just look at like one or two hours. In my in my view, I think you need to look at a more prolonged recovery period to see because you grow muscle being anabolic over the course of the day, right? Not after just one exercise bout or one protein shake and actually not even over the course of the day, over weeks, right? Months, whatever. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think they're pretty equal in quality it's just how fast they trigger muscle protein synthesis so it's it becomes a debate of whether how fast it triggers protein synthesis matters more than the overall anabolic effect of the protein which as you mentioned is similar when you actually look at the longer longer period that was a study done back in the 90s i believe um, but if you if you wanted the acute stimulation to add more leucine it yeah, it might work. The thing with casein is that it kind of clumps together in the stomach just by nature of how the protein is. And that's, that's why digestion is and absorption is, is slowed down a little bit. So it's kind of more of a protracted release into circulation. So I'm not sure if adding leucine would like amplify mm. that process. It's possible that it would. Um, I'm not aware of any research that has looked at that. Um, the, those, those types of studies are coming yeah. out almost every day. It's, yeah so it's like the it's 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 the physical viscosity properties rather than the actual protein ingredient the ingredients that actually cause it the, the delayed release yeah yeah slush. yeah casein clumps okay. the clots in the stomach yeah yeah it's 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 horrible to drink it it's like chalk um but yeah it's uh it's been great having you on tanner and, and thanks for asking these uh difficult and often very hypothetical questions um it's been very enjoyable to get somebody in your in your field to be able to to kind of to help answer these w what's coming down the line you know what are you doing in the future and then where people where can people find more about you and your work yeah so i'm actually wrapping up my phd thesis in april hopefully successfully um and then actually moving on to medicine if everything goes well. Oh, nice. So I, I want to kind of move into the clinical space, still do research, hence the PhD. So I hope to, to see patients, but also to answer some questions. I'm, I'm kind of moving more towards aging and the influence of inactivity and nutritional supplementation in that realm. Um, but we'll see. That's, that's all up in the air mm -hmm. right now. So we'll, we'll see in April. But uh, looking at, at our work, I think, well, you could, you could find us on PubMed. If, you're, if your listeners are familiar with PubMed, it's kind of the repository for where all the, uh, where all the papers that we publish are submitted. Uh, but also, I think that your best bet to follow our work is to follow my supervisor, Dr. Stuart Phillips, on Twitter. His, uh, his handle is at MattKinProf. I also, I, I put our papers up, but I'm, I'm nowhere near as prolific as, as he is on Twitter. So I'd recommend following him, but yeah, we'll, we'll put yours up too as well. Yeah. You, you, so, so you, nice. I'll, I'll be all in the show notes. So you'll be one of the very few people to have a MD and PhD. Is that right? Uh, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Fingers, fingers crossed. <laughs> nice. so, 